You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. It's always good to get a round of applause out before the preacher starts so that you don't need to share your opinions afterwards. Um, Last time that I preached and I wore this jacket and I got more compliments on the jacket than I did on the content of the sermon. So I thought I'll wear it again this morning and I'll count them again. And hopefully my preaching has improved. And I think I'll keep on wearing it every time I preach until they level out and I get more for the sermon than I do the jacket. Thanks very much. Yeah, I like it too. Um, yes, hello everyone. Thanks very much for being here. It's great to have you with us. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sam Isaacson. I'm part of the Redeemer community here. Um, and I discovered recently that there are actually two Sam Isaacsons that live in the borough of Ealing, which is a surprising fact, isn't it? Because you wouldn't have thought that Sam Isaacson is a particularly common name. But don't worry, it's not that surprising because they're both me. It's just that there is one Sam Isaacson that most of you know, mild-mannered husband and father, Christian. And then there's this other Sam Isaacson that kind of comes out Monday to Friday, this ambitious career-driven, selfish, greedy, horrible business advisor who works in the city. And both of them are genuinely me. It's just that I seem to have this kind of split identity between work and home. And I wonder if maybe you can identify with that yourself. I kind of have two identities, and they're both me, and I am both. And people who really know me kind of know both of those me's, but some people only know one. And when people who only know one discover the other me, then it can be quite surprising. So people at work, when they hear that I've got two kids and one on the way, in case you didn't know that one, um, yeah, um, they're quite surprised that kind of this guy who they only ever see in business meetings facing off against boards of directors at big national and international firms is actually kind of this family man who hangs around and, you know, goes on holiday to the beach and this kind of thing. It's a little bit weird, and the same for people who know the other me. Identity is quite an interesting subject, and so I want to talk this morning about our identity and the way that we see ourselves. I think most of us, if I were to ask you kind of who you are, what is your identity, you'd probably start to talk about a role that you have or perhaps some relationship that you're in. So we talk about the fact that I am whatever I am at work. So I'm this particular grade, or I work in this particular sector, or it's a relationship. So it's, I am a husband, or a father, or I'm a a son or a daughter, something like that. Sometimes then we describe ourselves in terms of the relationships that we don't have. So I am single, and I'm waiting for somebody to come along, and that's kind of the way that we define ourselves. There's an idea of having a national identity, and a question that the media keep coming back to again and again is what does it mean to be British? I discovered last week that a third of people who live in London weren't born in the UK. And so when you're living in London, then there's this kind of constant ongoing question with, are we, you know, what does it actually mean to be British? What does it mean to have a national identity? The fact that I'm British, what does that mean about who I am? And with the rise of social networking, then the online identity that we create for ourselves can often be a highlight reel of our life And there's a behind-the-scenes that we don't allow our online identity to take on. And actually, we are this perfect person online that is different from the identity that we truly have. And we hear about identity theft, about getting a phone call. Excuse me, sir, you haven't paid your credit card. 
I don't have a credit card. Well, there's one that has your name on it because my identity has been stolen. But in truth, my identity hasn't been stolen. It's just that someone has found out my mother's maiden name. So me has still been me and is still me, but somebody else has got some details. There's a big question of identity. So this morning, I really want you to ask yourself, who are you? What is your identity? What is your meaning in life? What is your purpose? What is your destiny? That's where I want us to go this morning. And I'm going to make us an offer. I would like to make you an offer this morning not to get a new identity, but to discover your true identity. So when it comes in about half an hour, I'll probably be wrapping up, and I'm going to ask that question, and I want you to respond by sticking your hand in the air. So I thought, shall we give that a practice right now so that we are used to doing it, so that by the time that we get there, it isn't a foreign concept. So when I say, put your hand up, I wonder if we could all just put our hands up. So are you ready? Put your hand up. Great, so we can all do it. So we know that it's possible. Great, I'm, I'm glad that we started there. Otherwise, I would have had questions when we actually get there. If people hadn't, whether it's because they don't want it or because they really do want it, otherwise I would have been waiting for quite a while. So as I'm talking, then, please do be asking yourself that question. Who are you? What is your identity? And what's your destiny? Do you know it? And do you like it? The way that I'm going to do this is through the medium of a story. A very, very good story, one that I have not written. It was written by Charles Dickens. And if you've seen the slide behind me, eventually, uh, you might have guessed that it's going to be Oliver Twist. It's based in London, the city that we are in, and so we all kind of like that story. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, it's a little bit of bait and switch, because I thought I was coming to church this morning, and why are you going to be reading me some Charles Dickens? I want some good old Bible. Well, listen, I like the Bible. I believe every word of it. I'm complete Bible-believing mental Christian. Um, But this morning, I feel led to read as a story written by Charles Dickens. And we're going to get to some Bible. So if you have one and you want to find somewhere to read, then go to Luke 15 or Galatians 4, whichever you want. We'll end up in both, sort of. Um, But we're going to start with Oliver Twist. So let's just try some hand-raising again. Has anyone read the book Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens? Yeah, cultured bunch. I like this. Who hasn't read the book but at least has seen the film or gone to the musical or something? Okay. Well, about half and half, actually. So most of us are going to be familiar with the story. Well, these are the words uh, that Charles Dickens wrote. Um, It's a heavily abridged version, obviously. It's pretty long. But it's very good, so I recommend that you read it. Anyway, are we ready? Let's go for it. So this is the opening line of the first page of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Among other public buildings in a certain town, which for many reasons it will be prudent to refrain from mentioning, and to which I will assign no fictitious name, there is one anciently common to most towns, great or small, to wit, a workhouse. And in this workhouse was born, on a day and date which I need not trouble myself to repeat, inasmuch as it can be of no possible consequence to the reader, the item of mortality whose name is prefixed to the head of this chapter, Oliver Twist. For a long time after it was ushered into this world of sorrow and trouble by the parish surgeon, it remained a matter of considerable doubt whether the child would survive to bear any name at all, in which case it is somewhat more than probable that these memoirs would never have appeared, or if they had, that being comprised within a couple of pages, they would have possessed the inestimable merit of being the most concise and faithful specimen of biography extant in the literature of any age or country." 
Although I am not disposed to maintain that the being born in a workhouse is in itself the most fortunate and enviable circumstance that can possibly befall a human being, I do mean to say that in this particular instance, it was the best thing for Oliver Twist that could by possibility have occurred. The fact is that there was considerable difficulty in inducing Oliver to take upon himself the office of respiration, a troublesome practice but one which customers rendered necessary to our easy existence, and for some time he lay gasping on a little flock mattress, rather unequally poised between this world and the next, the balance being decidedly in favor of the latter. Now, if during this brief period Oliver had been surrounded by careful grandmothers, anxious aunts, experienced nurses, and doctors of profound wisdom, he would most inevitably and indubitably have been killed in no time. There being nobody by, however, but a pauper old woman who was rendered rather misty by an unwanted allowance of beer, and a parish surgeon who did such matters by contract, Oliver and nature fought out the point between them. The result was that, after a few struggles, Oliver breathed, sneezed, and proceeded to advertise to the inmates of the workhouse the fact of a new burden having been imposed upon the parish by setting up as loud a cry as could reasonably have been expected from a male infant who had not been possessed of that very useful appendage, a voice, for a much longer space of time than three minutes and a quarter. As Oliver gave this first proof of the free and proper action of his lungs, the patchwork coverlet which was carelessly flung over the iron bedstead rustled. The pale face of a young woman was raised feebly from the pillow, and a faint voice imperfectly articulated the words, let me see my child and die. That was the voice of Oliver's mother who did see her child and then she did die. And the first chapter of Oliver Twist ends like this. Oliver was badged and ticketed and fell into his place at once, the orphan of a workhouse, to be cuffed and buffeted through the world, despised by all and pitied by none. Oliver cried lustily. If he could have known that he was an orphan left to the tender mercies of church wardens and overseers, perhaps he would have cried the louder. Now on his ninth birthday, Mr. Bumble, the beadle, beadle is just the word for a workhouse officer, was talking to Mrs. Mann, the lady of a house down the road. And now about business, said the beadle, taking out a leather pocketbook. The child that was half-baptized Oliver Twist is nine years old today. Bless him, interposed Mrs. Mann, inflaming her left eye with the corner of her apron. And notwithstanding a offered reward of ten pound, which was afterwards increased to twenty pound, notwithstanding the most superlative and, I may say, supernatural exertions on the part of this parish, said Bumble, we have never been able to discover who his father or what was his mother's settlement, name, or condition. Mrs. Mann raised her hands in astonishment, but added, after a moment's reflection, how comes he to have any name at all then? The beadle drew himself up with great pride and said, I invented it. You, Mr. Bumble, I, Mrs. Mann. We name our fondlings in alphabetical order. The last was a S, Swabble, I named him. This was a T, Twist, I named him. The next one comes will be Unwin, and the next Vilkins. I have got names ready-made to the end of the alphabet and all the way through it again when we come to Z. Oliver's life was a misery in the workhouse, and so he ran away. On his way to London, he met another boy called Jack Dawkins, the Artful Dodger. 
he offered him a free meal and a place to stay for the night, which, of course, Oliver took up. And here's the description of the place the Dodger led Oliver. The walls and ceiling of the room were perfectly black with age and dirt. There was a deal table before the fire, upon which were a candle stuck in a ginger beer bottle, two or three pewter pots, a loaf and butter and a plate, in a frying pan which was on the fire and which was secured to the mantel shelf by a string, some sausages were cooking, and standing over them with a toasting fork in his hand was a very old shriveled man whose villainous-looking and repulsive face was obscured by a quantity of matted red hair. He was dressed in a greasy flannel gown with his throat bare and seemed to be dividing his attention between the frying pan and the clothes horse over which a great number of silk handkerchiefs were hanging. Several rough beds made of old sacks were huddled side by side on the floor. Seated round the table were four or five boys, none older than the Dodger, smoking long clay pipes and drinking spirits with the air of middle-aged men. These all crowded about their associate as he whispered a few words to the Jew and then turned round and grinned at Oliver. So did the Jew himself, toasting fork in hand. This is him, Fagin, said Jack Dawkins, my friend Oliver Twist. Oliver had inadvertently walked into a gang of pickpockets. He was introduced to Artful Dodger's sidekick, Charlie Bates, and within a couple of days, Fagin sent them out on a walk together. Hush, replied the Dodger. Do you see that old cove at the bookstall? The old gentleman over the way, said Oliver. Yes, I see him. He'll do, said the Dodger. A prime plant, observed Charlie Bates. Oliver looked from one to the other with the greatest surprise, but he was not permitted to make any inquiries, for the two boys walked stealthily across the road and slunk close behind the old gentleman towards whom his attention had been directed. Oliver walked a few paces after them and, not knowing whether to advance or retire, stood looking on in silent amazement. The old gentleman was a very respectable-looking personage with a powdered head and gold spectacles. He was dressed in a bottle-green coat with a black velvet collar, wore white trousers, and carried a smart bamboo cane under his arm. He had taken up a book from the stall, and there he stood, reading away, as hard as if he were in his elbow chair in his own study. It is very possible that he fancied himself there indeed, for it was plain from his abstraction that he saw not the bookstall, nor the street, nor the boys, nor, in short, anything but the book itself, which he was reading straight through, turning over the leaf when he got to the bottom of a page, beginning at the top line of the next one, and going regularly on with the greatest interest and eagerness. What was Oliver's horror and alarm as he stood a few paces off, looking on with his eyelids as wide open as they would possibly go, to see the Dodger plunge his hand into the old gentleman's pocket and draw from thence a handkerchief, to see him hand the same to Charlie Bates, and finally to behold them both running away round the corner at full speed. Oliver panicked, and so he started running as well. But not being used to it, he got caught quite quickly and was dragged before a judge. He was given a mock trial in which the policeman standing there pretended that he was hearing things from him and even claimed that his name was White. But luckily, a witness came along who had seen it and proved his innocence. However, the man that the handkerchief had been stolen from, Mr. Brownlow, saw that Oliver was obviously sick and so took him home with him to look after him. Are you fond of pictures, dear? inquired the old lady, seeing that Oliver had fixed his eyes most intently on a portrait which hung against the wall just opposite his chair. I don't quite know, ma'am, said Oliver, without taking his eyes from the canvas. I have seen so few that I hardly know. What a beautiful, mild face that lady's is. 
Ah, said the old lady, painters always make ladies out prettier than they are, or they wouldn't get any custom child. The man that invented the machine for taking likenesses might have known that would never succeed. It's a deal too honest, said the old lady, laughing very heartily at her own acuteness. Is, is that a likeness, ma'am, said Oliver. Yes, said the old lady, looking up for a moment from the broth. That's a portrait. Whose, ma'am, said Oliver. Why, really, my dear, I don't know, answered the lady in a good-humored manner. It's not a likeness of anybody that you or I know, I expect. It seems to strike your fancy, dear. It is so pretty, replied Oliver. Well, I'm sure you're not afraid of it, said the old lady, observing in great surprise the look of awe with which the child regarded the painting. Oh, no, no, returned Oliver quickly, but the eyes look so sorrowful, and where I sit they seem fixed upon me. It makes my heart beat, added Oliver in a low voice, as if it was alive and wanted to speak to me, but couldn't. At this point, Mr. Brownlow came in, and he talks to Oliver. Queer name, said the old gentleman. What made you tell the magistrate your name was White? I never told him so, sir, returned Oliver in amazement. This sounded so like a falsehood that the old gentleman looked somewhat sternly in Oliver's face. It was impossible to doubt him. There was truth in every one of its thin and sharpened lineaments. Some mistake, said Mr. Brownlow. But although his motive for looking steadily at Oliver no longer existed, the old idea of the resemblance between his features and some familiar face came upon him so strongly that he could not withdraw his gaze. I hope you are not angry with me, sir, said Oliver, raising his eyes beseechingly. No, no, replied the old gentleman. Why, what's this? Bedwin, look there. As he spoke, he pointed hastily to the picture over Oliver's head and then to the boy's face. There was its living copy. The eyes, the head, the mouth, every feature was the same. The expression was for the instant so precisely alike that the minutest line seemed copied with startling accuracy. Oliver knew not the cause of this sudden exclamation, for not being strong enough to bear the start it gave him, he fainted away. Now, why was Mr. Brownlow so interested in the likeness between Oliver and the painting? It's because the painting was a painting of his daughter. And it turns out that Oliver was his daughter's son. So completely by accident, Oliver had ended up in his family home with his grandfather. Now, I've read about an abridged version of probably about the first 10% of Oliver Twist, so there are a lot of adventures that go on after that, and I would encourage you to read it. It's great, but I'm going to stop there. I'd like to sum up the story of Oliver in three life stages. He started off over here as an orphan. As an orphan, Oliver Twist was miserable. Nobody treated him nicely. It was a horrible existence for him. He was poor. He had literally no possessions and was treated badly by those in the workhouse. He was treated like he was just a number, just another burden on society, to the point that his name was literally just the next letter in the alphabet. It wasn't even a genuine name for him. It was just, you're the next one. He was seen negatively by those who were meant to be caring for him. And he had this sense of wanting more. So the famous scene from Oliver Twist is Oliver approaching Mr. Bumble, with the empty bowl saying, please, sir, I want some more. Which Mr. Bumble is absolutely shocked at. Never before has a boy wanted more. So Oliver Twist started as an orphan. However, escaping from the workhouse and making his way to London, he moved from being an orphan to being an accessory. Accidentally walking into the gang of pickpockets. 
Now, life was actually better for him in the gang. He was treated as an individual. The Artful Dodger called him my friend, Oliver Twist. He had friends. He was known as an individual person, valued for being himself. And there was even a sense of being an important part of something bigger. If he had stuck around, then he could have been a successful pickpocket, helping out Fagin and the rest of the gang, and probably profiting from, profiting from it himself in the long run. So actually, he, it was much better life than being in the workhouse. However, there was something that made him feel less important than the bigger group. So who was valued more, Oliver Twist as an individual or Fagin's gang? Well, we know from the rest of the story that as Oliver is taken in by Mr. Brownlow, actually Fagin and the rest of them craft a plan to steal, to kidnap Oliver back because they don't want him giving up the secrets of their gang. So actually, even though he's valued as an individual, the gang is more important than him. So being an accessory is a bit better than being an orphan, but it isn't quite there yet. But of course, we know where the story goes. They live happily ever after as Mr. Brownlow adopts Oliver Twist as his own son. And it means that he moves from being an orphan to being an accessory to being family. So as family, he had a discovery of his true self, walking into that house and discovering, this was my mother, this is my grandfather, this is where I'm meant to be, actually looking around saying, this is who I really am. This house is my inheritance. This is, this is who I really am. This, I'm not Oliver Twist, I'm Oliver Brownlow, because this is my family. He was fully accepted, not because of what he'd done, but because of who he was. Simply walking into that house and discovering that himself was all that it took. He didn't need to do anything. He could have been part of Fagin's gang and had been the one who genuinely stolen the handkerchief from Mr. Brownlow's pocket. He wasn't, but it wouldn't have made any difference anyway. He was, his, he was part of that family because of who he was. I'd like to now tell a bit of a different story. This different story was told by Jesus, and it's in Luke 15 if you want to follow it. I'm not going to read it out word for word, but it is there. You can read it. And it follows that same pattern. Jesus told it before Charles Dickens wrote it, just in case you uh, need the chronology of that. Um, now, obviously, Oliver Twist's mother died in childbirth. But in Jesus' story, then the man, who I will call Oliver to make it easy, Oliver didn't want to uh, be part of his family anymore. He wanted his inheritance early. And so he effectively went to his father and said, Father, I want you dead so that I can get my inheritance. So where Oliver Twist became an orphan and it was outside of his control, this Oliver in Jesus' story went to his dad and said, I want to be an orphan. I just want my inheritance. And surprisingly, Oliver's dad in Jesus' story says, Okay, you can have your inheritance. And so the Oliver in Jesus' story becomes an orphan voluntarily. But he leaves with this inheritance, and he goes and spends it on everything he can think of. In Jesus' words, uh, he squandered his property in reckless living. Parties, holidays, expensive restaurants, hanging out with the best people, seeing all of the best sights, eating the best food. He was really living the life. So where Oliver Twist, as an orphan, was miserable and poor... The Oliver and Jesus story was very wealthy and very happy on the surface. However, his money ran out. And when his money ran out, his friends didn't want to hang out with him anymore. And so actually there was a discovery that he wasn't valued for being himself. 
he wasn't even valued as an individual. He was valued as being the one that can provide the money. And when the money runs out, then you as a friend runs out. You're not allowed entry into these restaurants or onto these holidays. You're not allowed to go and have the life that you want. So actually, there's not that much dissimilar between Oliver Twist and the Oliver and Jesus story. It's just that the Oliver and Jesus story had some money. But it ran out at the same time as the country that he was in went into famine. And he became an accessory. He went to a local landowner and said, please let me work on your land and you, know, you just give me food and accommodation and I'll, I'll work hard for you. Landowner took him in and takes him on. But because of the famine and everything, he ended up not being given enough food to the point that he had to start eating the food that he was meant to be feeding the pigs with. And so actually, his version of being an accessory was much worse than the change of Oliver Twist moving from orphan to accessory, but it was still the same. He was valued as an individual, he would be helping out, and he was part of something bigger. He was part of the landowner's farm, looking after the pigs. But it came to the point where actually the farm was more important than the Oliver in Jesus' story. And so as much as he was valued as an individual, the farm is more important than him. And in Jesus' words, he came to himself and he discovered that the hired servants back at his father's farm were treated better than he was being treated on this farm. And so he figured out, if I go back to my father and I repent of everything that I've done, I just say, I'm, I'm so sorry, I should never have turned my back on you. I should never have wanted that inheritance. I had a happy life. Please, will you take me on as one of your hired servants? And then at least I know that I'll be getting a better life than the one that I'm getting here. You know, that, that's, that's all that I want. And so, you know, I haven't got anything to lose. Might as well give it a go. But Jesus says that as he climbed the hill and just came in view of his father's farm, that his father saw him while he was still far off. His father had been waiting for him. He had been watching that place, knowing that he was going to be coming back. And Jesus says his father ran to him. There was no hesitation. He didn't even get halfway through the speech that he'd prepared to say sorry. And the father took the ring of the family and put it on his finger. And he took the robe and put it over his back. And he threw a massive celebration, a great party, that his son, who once was dead, is now alive again and can come back fully reinstated as the son. In other words, that son moved from being an accessory to being part of the family again. Adopted straight back into the family that he had left willingly in the first place. It's the same story as Oliver Twist. And there's something about the story of Oliver Twist that sits very comfortably with us. and We like it. And a lot of stories follow exactly the same pattern. Because as humans, we are wired that we, we have gone through that same story as well. And so there is another story that I don't want to tell. I want you to tell. That's your story. I think every single one of us can find ourselves in any one of these three camps. Orphan, accessory, or family. It may be that your life is absolutely miserable, that you haven't got anything at all, that you haven't got any friends, you feel completely devalued, you feel like you're just some number on a page. You can't, you haven't, when I asked you that question, who are you? The only things that you could think of were such broad categories like I am British. That doesn't mean anything. There are so many people who would say that they're British that are so completely different to me, there's no identity at all. It may be that actually on the surface you feel like you are quite happy. Maybe it's because you've got a lot of money and you're able to go on nice holidays and you're able to eat out in expensive restaurants. But actually, if I were to take that money away, you wouldn't have the lifestyle and the thing that you're getting your identity from 
is no identity at all. Your identity is found in something that isn't even you. It may not be money, it may be something else. Maybe time or a talent that you've got and that's the only reason that you're valued because of something, you know, something that isn't actually you. It's just something that people are valuing you for that if you lost it, you wouldn't be valued as yourself. It may be that actually it's easier for you to identify with the idea of being an accessory. That you've got some friends who value you. You've got people who genuinely see you as an individual and like you for being who you are. You feel like you're part of something bigger. Maybe that something bigger is your career, a workplace, or your family, or maybe it's some kind of religion or a political ideal that you hold yourself to. But you really know that actually, if it came down to a choice between you as an individual or that ideal, those people who value you as an individual would go for the ideal, not you. And therefore, actually, you're still in this camp of being an accessory. But there is a third option. Jesus' story was very intentional. He, talked it, he told that story in order to talk about himself. He was saying that actually there is a way to become part of the family. And it's not some new strange thing that you need to add on to your life. It is who you have truly been called to be. And it's just taken you until now to discover that you need to embrace that as part of yourself. You need to simply receive that love of the Father that is there freely waiting for you. Galatians chapter 4 puts it like this. When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, that's Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, there is a level of satisfaction that comes with being in family, that you don't get in orphan and you don't get in accessory. Even if there is a veneer of being happy, of being satisfied in your life, you know that actually there is a sense of feeling out of control, that other people have got control over your lives. And actually, I'm discontent when you start digging down, taking off those layers. But in family, by faith in Jesus... Actually, there is such a full and deep satisfaction that nothing else can give you because your identity is now found in Jesus and not in you. But in doing that, you discover your true self, which is called to be a son or a daughter of God. But more than that, there is an inheritance. We become an heir through Christ because we've become children of God. When Oliver Twist walked into that house and he saw that house was going to be his, Actually, when we're in this place, the Bible tells us that the people of God is the temple of God, and the temple of God is where God dwells. And that's our inheritance. It's my house. And there are things that come with it. And Edward shared those words earlier, saying that there is healing. Healing is something that God can do, and as children of God, is something that we can do. Not because we're magic, but because we have an inheritance that comes from our Father, and he freely gives it to us. It's amazing. So, I am going to make us an offer this morning. I want to make you the free offer of receiving the love of the Father and entering into that family. And it's as easy as that. And I'm going to do it by asking you to raise a hand. As a surprise. So maybe it is that you actually feel like you are an orphan. That you look at your life 
and you find that either you're miserable, that there's no, you feel like there's no meaning at all. It may be that actually you do find that you've got some level of identity, but that thing is not in you. It's in something that you have or something that you do, and that you know that actually you wouldn't be valued if it wasn't for that. Maybe it's that you do feel like there is something that is a little bit greater than you, and people do value you, but actually when it comes down to it, you're not valued as an individual as much as maybe you feel like you are because this greater thing is more important. If you're in either of those camps, whether you have previously received the love of the Father through faith in Christ, or if this morning is the first time that you want to make that response, I make this offer to you freely. It may be that actually you've known Jesus for months or years or decades, but you feel that you've maybe drifted back and are finding your identity in something else. This morning, I make you this free offer again. And I want us to respond to that offer by simply raising a hand. So are you ready? Here it comes. If you would like to receive this offer, then will you please raise your hand with me right now? That's it. Thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you. Feel the love of the Father. Amen. I'd like to uh, ask the band to come back up, please. Um, and I will hand over to Adam to do the next step.